Welcome to Rules of the Frame. I am your host, Connor Reed, and here is your other host, John Skinner. How's it going? Yeah, so for those of you who are listening in for the first time, we are a film podcast. We pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics. Our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment, but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore. So we are still right in the beginning of our Limitations Breed Creativity series, For our second film that we're doing, we are covering Christopher Nolan's first film, Following, which we think, you know, fits fits this build pretty well. I mean, obviously, it's his first film, so he's just starting off. He doesn't have the notoriety that he has now. He lives in London, which is a very expensive place to live, let alone film in. And he navigates through that and through making his own very personal film with having basically no budget. Like he has like $6,000 of his own money that he put into it and that's how big the budget is for this film. And it's pretty astounding the product that he's able to get out of it and the limitations that make the film more interesting and also kind of give you a foresight into what he is about to get into. Um, so John, you wanna you wanna get us started off with your summary? All right, yeah. So. An unemployed writer called The Young Man narrates in an interview how he became obsessed with picking and following random people on the streets of London as an intense form of people-watching. He sets up a series of rules to prevent trouble, which he quickly starts breaking. Soon he is confronted by a man with a bag who he was following. The man, named Cobb, explains that he is a burglar and invites the young man to join him. Three stories are intertwined the rest of the film. First, Cobb teaches the young man how he commits minor burglaries mostly to let people know that they're being watched and to teach people to value what was taken from them. He enjoys violating people's privacy and gaining power over them by messing up their lives in small ways. In the second storyline, the young man, now dressed sharply and with a haircut, pursues a relationship with a blonde who is revealed to be a previous burglary victim. She fears a powerful ex called the bald man who is a criminal that she witnessed committing murder and who is currently blackmailing her. In a third storyline, the young man recovers from an assault and by himself breaks into the bald man's safe to steal documents and cash. The storylines merge and the connections between them are revealed. Cobb gave the young man a credit card to clean himself up and start living the same type of lifestyle on the spoils of the burglaries. When the young man reveals to Cobb, the blonde wants him to steal cash and compromising photos. Cobb assaults him and abandons him. It is revealed that Cobb and the blonde are in a relationship, and that everything has been a setup to frame the young man for a murder Cobb is falsely suspected of committing. They expect the young man to be caught robbing the safe. Instead, he succeeds, committing a murder while escaping. He confronts the blonde and learns the truth. He decides to go to the police, and the interview from the beginning is revealed to be a police interview. 
it becomes clear that Cobb has framed the young man successfully and left no trace of his existence, leaving the young man culpable for at least two murders. As the young man tries to talk his way out of his situation, one last cruel twist is revealed. The bald man is real and paid Cobb to murder the blonde, which he does. Nice. Well, I wouldn't call the end nice, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic Nolan twist. Yes, well, there's been much bunch of them. Yeah. Uh, how many yeah. times have you, have you seen this film before? Yeah, I actually saw it uh, probably my freshman year of college whenever I was, I mean, just on a huge Nolan kick. I mean, all throughout high school, I was like, oh, Christopher Nolan, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so in college, I got more serious about like going through and watching all of his films. And so this was actually the last of his films that I had left to see. So I watched it way back then. And then um, didn't watch it again until recently. And then I watched it three times because there's like the you know the regular version of the film there's the linear cut of the film and then the one of director's commentary so i've seen this film too many times now oh i didn't know there was different cuts that's interesting mm-hmm. back when yeah. he he so did did the linear cut get uh released in theaters or like how did that work so that got released whenever they did the first dvd print which was not the criterion okay. print um because I have like the original DVD from 2001 or so, and it has the linear cut on it. So it was like fairly soon after this came out, which is really fascinating that they were like, oh, IFC was like, yeah, let's put money into this to like switch it around sort of thing. But I think it was probably following on the, the momentum of Memento and like the linear cut of that. Yeah, well, Memento, I get the linear cut because once you've seen it, it kind of... I mean, I love Memento, but it lose it does lose a little bit of the magic. So mm-hmm. the linear cut makes sense. Where, uh, do we, what what did you think of the linear cut? I'm curious because on this one, it feels like it would lose some of the magic from the linear cut itself. Hmm. Yeah, I liked it. Um, it was definitely, I mean, much more straightforward. Like whenever you're watching it normally, your mind is just kind of working. Like, okay, what the heck is going on? What's up with all mm-hmm. these like weird cuts? And you're like having to piece it together, which can be exhausting at times. Um, I think there's something like with Memento where he's like perfected it. And so like Mm -hmm. you still have to think and process through Memento, but it doesn't feel like a chore and it can kind of feel like a chore with this one. Um, But it is interesting like how much more straightforward the film gets whenever it is linear and like how certain scenes like don't really match up afterwards. It's like, oh, that only worked because it was taken out of order just like conversations that happen like after each other or like the times that he goes and visits the blonde and all of that sort of stuff is just like doesn't fit in nearly as well as it does with the uh non-linear story yeah and obviously with memento it's like it fits with the story having it told mm-hmm. that way whereas this is just kind of a gimmick but i i've yeah. be honest i've be honest with you i was shocked by how how good this was not that i thought it was mm. gonna be bad but like, I I I knew about following. I knew that I you know this is the last Nolan film that I hadn't seen of of his releases. But um, I I kind of thought it was more of like a closer to a student film, and mm-hmm. you know I I was kind of expecting it wasn't what I expected, which I kind of expected more of like quieter and uh less character interaction and and more following actually yeah. there wasn't yeah. a lot of, there wasn't, wasn't a lot of following yeah, there's not a lot of following that, that 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 part's kind of thrown away pretty quickly which yeah. I, I thought was interesting it's kind of just a an excuse to say well well this guy got in this situation because he was 
being a weirdo, you know, type of thing. But yeah. uh, I I loved it. I thought it was really good. And mm-hmm. because, like, this thing is so, like we're going to talk about, this thing is so no budget. It was like, what, a thousand pounds or something? Three thousand pounds? Some very uh, 6, small. Six thousand, yeah. Six thousand pounds or dollars? Yeah. Pounds. Pounds. Yeah. So, like, just no budget whatsoever. And, and to create a movie that's essentially a normal Nolan film, as we know mm-hmm. now. Like, this is... This is pretty much what he does, and yeah. I was impressed by that. I was like, "Oh wow!" Like he really he didn't he didn't really sacrifice anything of what kind of his desire for what a film should be like at mm-hmm. all, and so I was really impressed. I I thought there was I thought there was gonna be more of a classic Nolan film that was gonna be sacrificed, mm. you know, um, because he has a very obviously has a very strong sense of what he wants to do, but. It, I was just amazed how much of that he was able to do right. in this. Um, yeah, I was really cool. big fan. So my two words would be um, impressive vision, kind of going mm-hmm. along with what I just said. Um, I'm really impressed with, like, obviously the impressive in that it's impressive that they were able to create such a, you know, Honestly, I didn't really notice it being low budget in any mm. way. Like I know the stories of what they did to 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 keep the budget down, but watching it as just a film, it was very much uh doing a lot with little. And then Vision mm. just that that like I said, like it's this is what he wants to make as a film. This is this this is his style of filmmaking and there's not much sacrifice in 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 giving that away. So uh kind of it's kind of a a precursor to you know it's it's been interesting watching it back in the 90s like thinking like not knowing that oh this this is what he's going to do like this is what his Mm -hmm. movies are going to be like and um there's really no difference like he's you're not losing anything from that um right yeah so i i was really just impressed with it Mm -hmm. yeah uh my two words are invasive privacy kind of going into more of the personal part of it the story of this stems from whenever his flat in london was broken into like he was just returning from somewhere and just sees like the door kicked in and like all of his stuff scattered around and he's like i just felt like so exposed and all that and like the weird part of it being like how they took so much personal stuff like let alone you know cds or tv or vhs's Mm -hmm. or that sort of thing and how so much of that is like explored in this with Cobb's character like really only caring about like the the boxes that people have or like the personal things and all that he like he you know whenever and the first break and he's like oh i don't do it for the money i do it to like live in another person's shoes and um and i mean this is just the start of nolan's empathetic criminal characters where they there is less of an interest in like money and more in like personal reasons and things that go into play with it like he just brings these like very three-dimensional characters that in other films would probably be much more two-dimensional and it's like why did you do it? he's like i did it for the money or i did it for love and it's like it's never boiled down to that like minor of a thing it's um there's always so much more of like a personal interest and in, instead of like just greed which i find fascinating yeah i thought it was interesting because obviously Nolan is a super analytical guy, very into mathematical type of thinking mm-hmm. and and timelines and all that. 
And what was impressive, and he always typically has protagonists that are the same way. And so there's a meticulous nature, you know, Inception and mm-hmm. and Memento. Like there's a sense that these people, even Memento, like he's trying to 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 piece things together. Um, and what I thought was interesting is that a lot of times, even though they're criminals, they're like a tr- traditional like movie hero criminal that's mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't kill anyone or like there's not that dark side as much. Um, and I thought it was interesting with this being closer to straight noir type of thing. You kind of saw, I think, for the first time, for me watching a Nolan film, him really look at someone. It kind of felt like, what if I was a burglar? Like, what if mm-hmm. I did this? And he's taking that experience of being burgled and and uh, thinking, well, w- what's the mindset? Like, what, what what would it be like if I met the person that stole things from me? And because mm-hmm. I think he kind of, it kind of seems like the writer is is him in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And what kind of analytical mindset would go into that? And I thought it was interesting because there's not as much sympathy I think for these characters because you know mm-hmm. the, their mistakes really do spiral out of control by the end, and there there are real consequences for for doing this and um i think both the young man and Cobb are kind of there's a psycho like they're not psychopaths all the way but like there's i mean they're not likable 100 percent. you have there's humanity to them like you said like they there's motivations but they're kind of creepy motivations and um and manipulative and so i thought that was interesting um but it feels like this is the closest to a personal stand-in of any protagonist in a Nolan film, my guess would be. Yeah. I feel there's elements of certain characters um, that kind of pull that out of him in some of his other films, but yeah, I definitely feel like it does feel like the young man is basically him, and just kind of this want that he has of uh, I don't know, seeing that personal side of things, because it doesn't seem like uh, the young man's character is really after for the money. I mean, he enjoys that to a certain extent. Um, and like wondering how true it is whenever he's talking to the blonde and saying like, oh, I follow around like, you know, this a burglar because I'm doing a piece on burglary and all that. And it's like, you know, maybe he is because at the beginning you don't see him writing. Like he's just kind of having writer's block at the typewriter. And then after he's like burgled the house, he's like going at it and, you know, really hitting the typewriter one of the things i really loved was these awkward scenes where he's date you know on dates with the blonde or whatever <laughs> and he i mean he just can't stop asking questions like she's very clearly uncomfortable and yeah that's not an act i don't even think at the end mm-hmm. we it's revealed it's not part of the act i mean since the the blonde the bald guy ends up being real um but uh yeah like he keeps prodding it's like dude don't do this like you know, yeah you know obviously it doesn't matter for the plot of the story but it's like uh don't don't be a jerk on your date with this this person and and i i wonder if it's like yeah i bet nolan's had dates where he's like really curious about some dark part of someone. <laughs> like like he's done that before i think it was kind yeah. of the mission that he's done that of like just getting too oh did cre- you work for her sort of thing yeah yeah it's he's on the line of creepiness right like like you kind of feel for him but also like he's being too invasive and and so mm-hmm. you know he he ends up falling into that that burglary kind of addiction because for slightly different reasons than Cobb I bet for Cobb it's about power but for him it's about like story he likes to learn mm-hmm. what people are like and and I think that it's interesting um so it the following 
concept does follow into the burglary part. But I again, I was mm-hmm. a little surprised that that kind of obsession at the beginning, you kind of jump over that, like like the the crossover between uh, people watching and stalking kind of happens in the first thirty seconds type of thing. Um, right. Especially whenever he's like listing out the rules and he's like oh and that was the first one i broke and yeah yeah it's basically immediately after he stops talking to the police officer at the beginning whenever it kind of kicks into just being about like burglary and there's like elements of it afterwards whenever he follows because i guess it it is kind of broken up where he follows Cobb first and then starts burgling burgling and then after they break into the blonde's house that's whenever he starts following her and then going on dates with her, and then he starts following the bald man. And so I guess it is, like, it's all kind of presented more at the beginning, but linearly there's, like, three separate like, True. pieces yeah. of it. Yeah. I mean, do we want to talk about the actual limitations that this had? Because I think we all know it, but, like... Right. Um, before that, I uh, get into this this new segment that we're doing that's just kind of... Film History Now, which is basically taking a snapshot of what is going on in the film world at this time. Um, so Following is released in 1999. It's it's kind of like a, a sleeper hit, like doesn't make a, a whole lot of money. It mainly is just for touring around festivals, that sort of thing. But the 90s is really such an interesting up-and-coming time for small-time directors. Um, it's really the breakthrough of bigger directors who are bigger now having very small very low budget films and then kind of getting into the mainstream with it um so like in 94 kevin smith's clerks come out which you know is basically made with like five dollar budget sort of thing and um robert rodriguez's el mariachi comes out in like 92 and so there's these smaller films that are getting picked up and getting more noticed by bigger production companies that who are seeing these and saying like oh this person definitely has a future and so Nolan's kind of getting in on the tail end of this sort of thing I mean it it still goes on to in today's um, film world but there's just like this huge boom of it in the 90s you don't get it as much in the 80s just because you know there there isn't as much of that like film festival circuit as there is in the 90s and um, especially in England at this time Nolan was just saying like there was no film festivals like whatsoever like you just couldn't no one did small budget things and so he finishes the film brings it to LA and starts doing circuits in America and that's how he starts getting noticed and getting picked up and this is also like an interesting time for limitations as well because uh, as we'll be talking more about in later episodes this is during the period of Dogma 95, which is a set of rules that two Danish filmmakers, Thomas Vinterberg and Lars von Trier, uh, have set up where basically they're sick and tired of big budget movies and Hollywood movies. And they're like, film is supposed to be natural. How can we make this even more natural? And kind of going off of the rules that Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard get into in the French New Wave in the 60s of saying, we need to make cinema more true to real life. They're saying they go like way further where they're saying it it all has to be natural light, all has to be natural actors. It all has to be like, you know, it it throws away every single like studio element of the film and tries to make it as natural and as simple as possible to get like the quote unquote purest film possible. And so uh, this comes out like right in the middle of that. And I think 
plays a little bit to that, not in the sense of like intentionally doing that because I don't think um, Nolan ever adheres to any of those rules, but mainly just because of like budget concerns that he ends up like kind of accidentally doing a lot of these things. And so for me, I actually see it as um, staying like fairly true to Dogma 95. Like there's some story stuff and some other elements like he actually does use lights and camera tricks and all that sort of stuff which you weren't allowed to do in dogma 95 and i'll probably just read off all of the rules in a later episode but we won't get into it at this point but among that there's 99 is like one of the greatest years of film ever like a lot of people just say this is like the zenith and like the genesis of like the modern film comes out at this time because you have stuff like green mile matrix Fight Club, Magnolia, American Beauty, um, Star Wars Episode One comes out this year as well, Eyes Wide Shut, uh, Iron Giant, you know, it's just like all of these incredible films are coming out and it's really changing the scape of, the filmscape of modern day cinema and so Nolan is coming in on the tail end of this and as we see later on kind of then creates a new American blockbuster. All those movies have aged so well, except for American Beauty. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> but hey, that's... Uh, well, okay, that is... Sorry. This is also an ironic thing. Um, yeah, that American Beauty comes out, which is Sam Mendes' first film. And I view Sam Mendes and Christopher Nolan like very akin to each other. I think they have very similar like visual styles and languages. They're both like around the same age too. Um, I feel like they just explore a lot of the same themes. They use a lot of the same actors as well. And so it's mm-hmm. interesting seeing the two of them kind of coming up. And like even more recently, like Sam Mendes's most recent film is 1917. And at this point, until a couple months from now, um, Nolan's latest film is Dunkirk, which are both kind of like twists on like the war, the classic war story being told and... Yeah, they v- yeah. feel very similar. Yeah, mm-hmm. Sam Mendes is funny because like he kind of sometimes gets accused of copying Nolan, but I think he mm-hmm. just kind of he just took a little bit longer to get to the style that he has. You know, right. he, he Nolan. I mean, you, this movie. I mean, the following. Like you can just watch this. You can tell Nolan knew what he wanted to do pretty pretty mm-hmm. early on, and so you know uh, he was just kind of pre-baked in what he wanted to do but uh mendez kind of did different things after this right and and, uh and then eventually got to a place you know with the last five years where it's like yeah everything he does kind of feels like a nolan movie but it's not because he's copying it's just i think that's just kind of his style too yeah um but yeah i agree um yeah i i it's funny because i didn't know very much about the plot of this movie but i knew all for years i had known a lot about what he had done to Mm -hmm to save money which i thought was really cool Um, yeah because because uh i don't know like i'm gonna list what i've heard and then you can tell me if there's anything else that you've found out about but like black and white film so that it's cheaper Mm. uh you said they did use real lighting but it was almost entirely natural lighting right right a lot of outdoor scenes or you know sunlit apartments or whatever so that they could Mm -hmm. get get the lighting right um naturally and they rehearsed like crazy right like short, small cast obviously pe- friends of his so that you know that's cheap i think he joked about they're wearing their own clothes so like mm-hmm. you know costuming obviously but then like 
the normal like indie film stuff, but then also they they're rehearsing super a lot until they had like one or two takes per scene just so that they didn't have to waste film, which is mm-hmm. I think that's really funny. Like <laughs> you're the, that you're that to the, that level where you can't even afford film. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I think that was those are the big ones that I know about. But just the idea that every a lot of the decisions about what the movie was going to be were decided by those limitations. Yeah, I mean that's basically limitations is like the genesis of it because Nolan at this point had done like some short films. He had done um, another short previous to this called Doodlebug, which introduced or yeah Jeremy Theobald who plays the young man in this to like film acting and all that. And so he had Jeremy had previously done like theater work before and some of like the the plays that he was in in like university are like the posters for them are hanging up like in the room in there and which is interesting. Um but so they start doing stuff that they know that they can film. Like that's that's one of the things that Nolan says about this. He's like, I needed to find something that would like give me cause to like film in places with a lot of natural light, film in a shaky sort of like, you know, handheld sort of fashion and make it seem natural. And then it kind of like came together with him getting burgled and being like, okay, that's it. You know, I'll do, I'll do a true crime um, sort of picture to kind of get my foot in the door of things. And one of the things I really like was he wasn't like, pretentious about any of it but basically just trying to make this film like the best way that he could and he's like uh, he says later on he's like i i didn't have memento in mind whenever i was filming in this and i don't think that people should have like should start writing another film whenever they're in the post-production process because then they start losing track of the film that they're working on um but so he didn't even see this as much of like a springboard into Memento, which is kind of like what it became, but more of just like, I'm going to make this film because I want to make it. And uh, I find that really admirable too. Of mm-hmm. just, we'll even see in the next episode that we're doing that um, there's elements of that, but there's more of an element to like, I made this so I can make this other thing, which is also an interesting limitation as well. But uh yeah, I like how much he just puts himself into it. Like, that's the thing that I, I will always appreciate about Nolan films is it always feels like he wants to make it. And even if it's not a story of his, um, I like Insomnia. I do think it's one of, like, the weaker Nolan films, but I still really like it. But it still feels very much like he wanted to make it. Still, There's still, like, a lot of style and intentionality in it instead of, like, I'm just going to kind of cash this this check in. Um which other directors, like even Sidney Lumet, who I love Sidney Lumet, he's like, I make three bad movies for every good movie that I do. And it's just like some of that um, that acknowledgement is like, okay, well, like uh, there's some things where it just kind of comes into play where you realize you're reading the script and you're on the first day and you're like, oh, this is not going to work, but still trying to give it your all. But there's for like Fantastic, the newest uh, Fantastic Four yep. film, you yep. know, where it just gives up on it, you know, and um, – What's the guy's name? Trask? Uh, Josh Trank. Josh Trank. Yeah, that I was. Yeah. That that was the the big thing that popped in my mind. Um, is this is part of what makes me like Nolan so much? Um, as even before seeing this movie, I, I just really liked his how practical he is, and like you said, mm-hmm. I mean, even even Spielberg has to do one for me, one for you. That's kind of the classic. 
things since uh, the 90s of one one fun movie and then one serious movie Um, and he does well on both but uh, with Nolan it seems like everything he does he wanted to do and and no one's telling Mm -hmm. him what to do but he's also not kind of in some ways in a weird way he's not letting himself tell him what to do like he's not uh, like you said looking to the next movie or trying to get money for his next film and that's always I really respect that about Nolan that's what makes me really like him just his personality Mm -hmm. seems really um, down to earth in that way because I I just think of I mean even Luke George Lucas right Mm -hmm. Star Wars is great but part of what makes Star Wars so great is that there's limitations that get put on the film and so some indulgent that stuff that happens later he doesn't have the option for that and so as soon as you know, and then later the rest of this film, the original trilogy, are other people directing. So there's some limits on on his complete control. And then when mm-hmm. you see him finally get big budget and complete control, it's not as good. In you know, <laughs> same year, uh, but as this, but uh, Trank is the big example of like a newer filmmaker that makes it. What was it? Um, what was the film he made that was really popular? Oh, was Chronicle. It? Chronicle, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and you kind of get a sense that it's like, well, I'm gonna make an indie film, like that. I'm, I'm gonna make a handheld or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. there's different ways that people do it, but like, I'm gonna do this first so that I can go make movies I want. And then that attitude, though, when you do go get the big budget, you aren't able to handle it. And fan mm-hmm. for you know, because you end up having to do a franchise, right? And you can't you can't be successful with the franchise because it's mm-hmm. not it's not your vision. And so you know, Fan Stick was a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, just a catastrophe. And wasn't what was he a Star Wars director? He was supposed to direct yeah, one of the Star Wars films. Oh, God. Um, that is insane to me. Yeah. So like, you know, there's the nowadays that's kind of the traditional thing is maybe one indie film, one bigger film of your own sometimes, and then uh, a smaller franchise and then you get a big franchise from Disney mm-hmm. you know that it's actually kind of disheartening i think in some ways how many directors have been picked up like that because they could be making the next star wars you know but right. that's another that's another conversation but uh yeah i just that's what i respect about nolan so much is that this film is you could be proud of this film this isn't like oh, yeah. oh man no oh man like i didn't have much budget on this so like you know don't look at this. Don't look at that. It it is a good film. He took what he had and he he was willing to adjust the story in ways that fit. Like it it's not oh I have to squeeze this in. I have to squeeze what I want to do in. It's looking at what you have, looking at the tools that you have, and building from that in a way that's authentic. And I really appreciate mm-hmm. that because, uh, like I said, a lot of times, I think that's a sign of a good director. And you see these these talented people. You know whether they end up having a successful career or not. Uh, as soon as you give them money or control or whatever, because they don't have that attitude before, they can't handle it or they don't do as well or they need a producer to help them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Nolan, I mean, there's there's no difference in how Nolan thinks of the challenge of uh, how do I film this scene with natural lighting? How do I build the 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 genre and the film of this film and the and the everything about it to my limitations? To how are we going to film this Inception fight scene with gravity? <laughs> like like it's that exact same mindset scaled with more budget. It's the same practical mindset, and and it leads to really good filmmaking because mm-hmm. uh, he's. 
he knows where his limitations are, and as they've gotten bigger, he hasn't squandered them or or gone over the top because it's the craft that matters to him. It's not, yeah. you know, he wants it to look a certain way and he wants to get there the right way. And I, and I really appreciate that because that that has been consistent through his, his whole career. I was still shocked how consistent this was with the rest of his films though. It was really good. Um, right. And it, it plays into like the future, I guess, filmography that he's done because it really shows how much he loves to challenge himself. And that's like one of my favorite things that directors can do is like, I'm going to make this movie to challenge myself. And he does that with like mm-hmm. every single one of his films. Even even nowadays, whenever he just has like insane budgets, like people just throw money at him. They're like, make whatever the heck you want. We don't care like if we read the script and it doesn't make sense. We know it's going to be good. And he, he still doesn't, like let that get to him like he still challenges himself of like okay you know for interstellar we're gonna trek an imax camera like all across iceland and like all of these insane things like we're not gonna be able to record like any natural sound you know and or like with dunkirk you know we're gonna film an entire dogfight like in the sky like with the planes you know like strap imax cameras to these old planes and do that and like, I love seeing his challenges just kind of get, like, bigger and bigger from that, where it can be really easy for directors to get very complacent and just be like, oh, yes, I'm safe. I'm I'm surrounded by my big money budget, and I don't have to, like, have to stress about any of these things anymore. And, I mean, for every single film, there's going to be challenges for a director, but it's very different whenever there's natural challenges that come up and challenges that you, as the director, put upon yourself. And that is something that I... I really respect about Nolan and that he even does for like the Dark Knight trilogy because at that point the last two Batman films you get are Batman and Robin and Batman Forever which are just like trash I mean rest in peace Joel Schumacher but like they're not like they're bad movies and like you're nicer to me than me you're you're a better person than me (laughs) (laughs) but like thinking of having to pick up that image again that has been like so cartoonish and say like well we're gonna throw like that like that whole superhero archetype away and basically like redefine the superhero genre after that it's just like such an impressive feat and to take it like so seriously too and to actually want to be able to or actually want to make it because warner brothers was like here are all these scripts you can make whatever the heck you want and he saw batman begins and he was like let's do that i mean that's just such an audacious thing for such a small-time filmmaker to do like he comes from these three pretty small crime dramas i mean insomnia is bigger because you have like al pacino and robin williams and hillary swank in it but like it's still a pretty contained movie and nothing to the scope of the dark knight trilogy and to be able to be so like confident to tackle that sort of thing is just like insane and to not lose yourself in it either is the incredible part. And Batman Begins is great because um, I think nowadays, especially with DC movies, there's this uh, – Marvel's been really good at patience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, be- and they have ba- – I would say Marvel has worse characters than, than – Oh, yeah. Just on, on paper than DC. And so they had to take their time and, di- you know, Marvel and then Disney did a good job of – of being patient with introducing the world to some of these characters. Um, but with Batman, I thought that was crazy. I was really good of him to be patient with what he had. And and I know he pull, pulled a script out, but like there wasn't this sense that he had to bring in the Joker. There wasn't this sense that like he could do a, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
what would be considered kind of not the main Batman villains in the story, but you're you're focused on building Batman's character, and so right. Um, now it's been overdone the, the the remakes all the time, but he kind of he kind of perfected the the remake the reboot of of superheroes because you 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 can actually that's a movie that's still enjoyable to watch the origins every one since it feels like it's it, other than Iron Man and a couple other ones mm-hmm. it whenever you have the origin story it seems like really exhausting and and you feel like right. can we get through this you know but with Batman mm-hmm. it, he he was able to be patient and spend his time building rebuilding that character from the ground up and mm-hmm. and I think that that's a sign of someone that's patient and willing to take their time you know i i wonder you know he says he doesn't think about the next movie but i wonder how much when he thought thought of batman if he ever thought man i want to do heat like yeah <laughs> yeah and and so he waited till the dark knight the dark knight to do that amazing you know version mm-hmm. of superhero and and he he didn't do that right away and and i don't know how much he was thinking about that but like just taking your time and not and, and building a franchise that way is really something that a lot of people have gotten really bad at, I feel like, mm-hmm. in the world. Everyone wants that Marvel money and and uh and so everybody jumps ahead all the time and it's really frustrating because yeah. uh it's a great way to ruin a franchise before it starts. And he was the original at that. And it's um it, it was great that that you know, you're talking about um that being his first like franchise movie but uh you know he did a good job adapting insomnia i haven't seen that in a mm-hmm. while and i need to see it again because i'm going to alaska next year and Ooh, nice and so yeah uh, that's that's a summer alaska movie but yep uh that's another one that's one of one where you see his limitations as well like mm-hmm. he's not getting to do his own story and he does a pretty good job of adapting it yeah i was impressed again how how fully formed this was but i do think mm-hmm. The, uh, even though I love Nolan, there are some weaknesses to his films, and it's interesting. Oh, seeing definitely. How, there's, there's seeing. You know, obviously, romance is is always essentially <laughs> essentially non yeah. non-existent. You know, he's he's playing with pulp novel stereotypes and and, mm-hmm. and archetypes and all that, and like like this is what they are, and I don't need to explain why or you know do that much emotion, which is fine. I think he knows he's not great at that, so he doesn't really try mm-hmm. and do it. Um, yeah, I think the I'll, best one that he has done is an in Inception, though, um, between Cobb yes. and uh, Maul, because like they're based, the relationship is over. Is like the point yes. of it. He can't the, build the building relationship. He can do, yeah, he can do the the the, but that's kind of a noir thing too. Like he can do mm-hmm. the the wistful, like, oh man, you know, my dead wife. You know, that's kind right. of the joke joke with his movies. Is it's always the past. The, the most of the emotion his characters have shown was one shot of Matthew McConaughey on a spaceship in Interstellar. Mm-hmm. To be fair, so but that and honestly th- makes me cry yeah. every time. So so, but even that, like that's kind of a limitation, right? I don't know how aware he was of that. Maybe it's just he likes that genre. But he did pick a genre with this film that that doesn't. It's not jarring when the relationships are bad because it's right. all fake. It's all fake, right? So the romance is kind of clunky, but it's because it's fake. Um, yeah, I think that's one limitation. The other one, I think, is I I love the the timeline stuff. I love mixing it up, but mm-hmm. it is kind of a criticism that he always has to do it. But mm-hmm. well, like you said, I think this. I'm trying to think, this this may be the the film that it's most gimmicky in, and it's still pretty yeah. good. It's still pretty good. Um, Memento has been criticized for you rewatching; it's not as good, but 
it's so spectacular what he mm-hmm. does that first that first watch that I don't think it's fair to criticize it that much. But this right. this would be interesting to watch the linear cut of this one because I do think it's a little bit reliant on that. But I think mm-hmm. you see it does just feel like a straight noir whenever you watch yeah the linear cut. But I mean honestly, uh, it doesn't detract that much from it. Even though the mm-hmm. the there's no memory or any timeline stuff that makes sense in the story it it's doesn't mm-hmm. detract from it and it and it's still pretty fully formed um but i do think that that's something that he's grown in and you can kind of see mm-hmm. the fact that he was able to do it well effectively with these limitations has kind of pointed to even though even if you consider that a weakness of the, of a crutch of his uh dunkirk for example mm. i think was perfect dunkirk yeah. was probably the best use of that obviously inception is awesome but mm-hmm. Uh, Dunkirk was perfect because the classic war film problem is very. F- ma- there's very few battles in history where everything, all these characters come together and and, and interact, right? And so right. it's really hard to tell different stories in a battle in a way that chronologically lines up. And so he figures, mm-hmm. well, the land battle took a week, the the sea battle part of the story took a day, and the air battle only takes 30 minutes or an hour or whatever mm-hmm. and so you you take those different types of stories and you realize well you know this epic story that this pilot went on was short but it mm-hmm. thematic you weave it together thematically instead of chronologically really i thought that was a really uh authentic way of telling a war story uh mm-hmm. that isn't just one platoon or one squad or whatever you can actually tell more than one story in a way that's not making it up basically Um, and I thought that was really effective yeah one of my personal opinions on Memento too is every time you watch it you have to watch it like after you've watched it for the first time you have to watch it with someone who's never seen it before (laughs) because then you kind of get that taste again of like oh yeah like I remember whenever this like twist was revealed like that's the best way to watch that film and one of the things I love about following is like I actually think Memento is basically like very close to a perfect film. Um, it just works so flawlessly. And without following, we wouldn't have had Memento. And you can see that even though he intentionally didn't do this as a test run, it basically was a test run to make Memento perfect and to really play with that structure. And I think he learns a lot from him. He learns a lot of like when to cut. And um, there's like a video of him breaking down memento where he's basically creates like this semicircle and he's like the story of the film is like you know you cut it like into pieces and then you know you show one part from the top layer and then one part from the bottom layer and so at the end of the movie they all converge in the middle part um and he you can see he kind of does a little bit of that here it is a little bit more scattered where like maybe the intro like the the top half of the semicircle which represents like the the beginning like chronological part of the film is probably longer than the end half. And um, I think he does a good job of building up to the end, but I think one of my critiques of nonlinear filmmaking is that it can be very hard to build up to like, kind of like an explosive climactic ending. I mean, you, you essentially know what is happening by the end of the film and what is going to happen. The reveal is kind of the part that makes the end of this film, but just the fact that, the the piece before like the climax or the end of the film is the young man talking to the blonde and saying, you know, I'm going to go tell the police. 
kind of like is a little bit of like drop in suspense and then like ramps it back up again for like those last like three minutes or so. And the last shot of this film is amazing. Like whenever Cobb is like walking around in London and like just kind of disappears into the crowd. Like that's great. That's the perfect way to end the movie. But it is hard to get like that that pull at the end whenever all of your your pieces are kind of like disjoined, basically. Yeah, and uh, I think Memento is probably still his best. If if we consider like half of his movies, he just does some timeline stuff, and then mm-hmm. the other half are really complicated. I would actually say Dunkirk is more complicated. Like he had to weave it yeah. together. That had to weave together with a satisfying climax, which worked really well. Um, uh, Inception obviously is really satisfying, uh, but Memento is probably the best, m- most complicated puzzle, I guess, that he put together. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is probably of those. It's probably the one that le- need needs that puzzle the least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is my only mild criticism is what what did you think of the ends? Like like you're like you said right? He 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 sort of learns most of the truth from the blonde and then goes to the police. Mm-hmm. which I still don't understand. This is probably just confusing to me. Is Does he confess to the murder from the robbery? Yes. Because that that was the part that I was like, it started to not make sense to me because uh, Cobb has not committed a murder as far as we know at right. that point. And so you're going in and confessing to him. In my mind, I think I kind of just registered that as he doesn't confess to the... He must have not confessed to the murder at the end because it doesn't make any sense to go into the police and be like, yeah, I murdered someone, but I will inform on this burglar for you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that the legal part of that's a little confusing. And then right. the big thing for me that I had a problem with... Well, I, I think you're right. It, it kind of drops off. And then... Uh, there's kind of this need to inject this twist and twist and twist, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I I wrote in the summary, and I've been saying now that it's revealed that the bald man was real. In my when I watched it, I'm not sure if you're supposed to believe this, but when I watched this, the first twist of the oh, there it's a it's a plot to frame him for this murder or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought oh. The bald man is just a random person. He has his. He he's not a real person. Mm, like he yeah. he doesn't matter. He's not the actual club owner or that sort of thing. Yeah, like they don't mm-hmm. say that, but I I kind of imply that. And then the twist at the end is he's real. Um, mm. But my my problem was that they kind of felt like you had to like keep doing twists at the end because you're mm-hmm. right. It's revealed a little early, and then there's a bunch of twists. But the drama of him being trapped in that interview doesn't make sense because in my mind two problems one it doesn't make sense for him to go in there and 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 uh part of his arc but also just it doesn't make sense for him to confess to the cops and Mm -hmm. then two i i really did not like the killing of the blonde at the end as Mm -hmm. a shock value because it doesn't make sense that's kind of a classic noir mistake i feel like that he made Mm -hmm. there which is fine it's a first movie but like the shocking needless violence against mm-hmm. a woman when it doesn't even make sense like it doesn't even make sense for Cobb's character to be like you know I care about people uh you know I care about manipulating people and and making people you know feeling power over people I guess that part makes sense but like yeah but I'm going to take money from this guy to murder you like mm-hmm. it doesn't you know it doesn't make sense to me 
that that twist was one too many, I think maybe, but but I, again, it's still a pretty strong ending and a, and a pretty strong film overall, and I don't think it ruins it. It just there was room to improve, and I think he immediately made that improvement and has mm-hmm. ever since on his twists. That's one of the hard parts too with Nolan films. Like as I said before, I love like all of his films. But he has a really hard time of ending the film without like a big chunk of exposition. And that's why I think Memento is stronger is because I feel like it doesn't rely as heavily on it. Um, But for a lot of his films, there kind of has to be like that Michael Caine character just kind of saying like, well, this is what was really happening the whole time sort of thing. And kind of I I think that's his doubt that the audience is smart enough to get what's actually going on or like just not presenting some of it visually, you know, the way he sets it up in this film, it's like, of course, like he couldn't end it without exposition because he hadn't set up those other things before because it would kind of give away his like twist ending sort of thing. But yeah, I think, I think, (laughs) I think there's part of him that thinks he's like too smart for the audience um, and that they're just like not going to get it. So that's, that's the hard thing with it. Yeah. He, it's like, to me, some of my favorite moments and then moments I wish I could fix are always the endings of mm-hmm. the film. So like Inse- the moments where he trusts his audience, like mm-hmm. Inception, to have some yes. ambiguity is excellent. I mean, the ending yeah, of Inception is perfect. So and, good. and it's funny because in the years since, he basically has been like, yeah, it's not a dream. Like he, he can't, he can't mm-hmm. I almost think he can't, he wants to explain. And so he can't <laughs> yeah. like let there be he ambiguity. He like, he wants, he wants to, to be like Kubrick and be like, ah, oh, let everyone like figure it out. And he's like, no, oh, but can't. this is actually how it is. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he can't. He he wants everything to have like a box that he can put. It. He's very organized, obviously, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I feel like he, he wants to explain it. And so he couldn't make it that far. I mean, yeah, you know, with the ambiguity. But the ambiguity is what makes that movie so powerful. When you walk out of mm-hmm. the theater, and and then the opposite of that is, I still don't know how I feel about this, but in the theater. One, when Batman died at the end of the Bat- Batman... Uh, oh, Dark Knight Rises. Dark Knight Rises, yeah. Uh, I loved that initially. Because when do you kill the superhero, right? Like, he, mm-hmm. he sacrificed for everyone. And then I actually did like that he was alive. Because mm-hmm. when does the superhero ever get to have a happy ending anyway, right? So right. that's another thing, right? Like, But then I kind of wanted that to be amb- ambiguous. Like, I kind of, in my mind, I kind of wanted the Michael Caine you know looks across the the way and and nods and and then it's like is he alive you know that would have been mm. great i was ready mm. to like debate that and then they show batman and it's like all right he's yeah. alive it's like all right fine like i wonder if they made him put in or something but like yeah. i i was really i was in that moment i was like yes like he's gonna mm-hmm. is batman alive is gonna be a big thing and instead he just kind of collapsed that mm-hmm. that mystery and uh you know so the moments where i wish there was more of those inception type moments because i agree mm-hmm. like there's a need to have zeros. that's what makes dunkirk so good is that there's no need for that it's, it's right. very clear what's going on and it's a more emotional climax than a than a logical one yeah and i mean i i often wonder with the dark knight rises if that was like a studio thing where they're like you can't actually kill off batman because we might want to bring him back is kind of like part of like how i interpret it as well um, but also it's very clear that like in the film, Batman is dead, but like Bruce Wayne is alive. He's never yeah. going to be Batman again. Yeah. Which is why they could have just had it ambiguous or had him killed because they didn't continue that Batman character in any meaningful way. Mm-mm. I think at the time they were considering it, I guess, but 
they ended up not. It's weird because they kept using the Wayne Enterprises logo. I know in the Superman movie, mm-hmm. but then, but but then they switch them. Anyway, we don't have to talk about that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think this film shows his both his weaknesses and his strengths, mm-hmm. and the things that he's continued to be good at, but also uh, things that weaknesses that maybe he's directed around and gotten better at, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Really cool. Yeah. And I mean, one of the constant critiques of Nolan is he doesn't write like the best dialogue. And I think that that's very much seen in this. I think all of the young man's character stuff is mostly fine. There's parts. It's mostly whenever he's trying to be Cobb, whenever I'm like, "Eh, that doesn't really work. But man, Cobb is so bad in this movie. Uh, Alex Hall, who plays him, does a terrible job. Like he just plays it like a stage actor. And like, I feel like he's trying to be like, Rupert Everett playing Algernon in uh, The Importance of Being Earnest. Like, he's just very much that, like, oh, I'm this high society, like, you know, British person, but I do these slight things on the side sort of thing. And, like... Yeah, yeah. It just tries to, like, play too much into that. And I'm like, that's not who the character really is. Like, yes, he's suave, but you do not seem, like, suave. Like, oh, my gosh, the hand motions are so bad. They yeah. are so bad. You take it away and you show them. Yeah, that's right. Oh. I it didn't it didn't it never got to cringy for me because it kind of fit like this guy's a sw- a swarmy jerk douchebag type of thing. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and and so like him being kind of fake kind of fits with his character being fake. The but I think the problem with that is that he's supposed to be a so to me what he's doing is he's a jerk and so I don't mm-hmm. like him so it's fine. For him to be so fake, it is a little cringy. But uh, the problem is, the young man is supposed to be enamored with this lifestyle, and it. Yeah, I would be. T- you should be probably be turned off by this guy, but I guess he's kind of <laughs> a, you know, into bad characters. I guess, I and mean, he's probably a bad writer. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. It, it, yeah, I, I, it. You can kind of. It's funny because it's Cobb. That's the name is Cobb, which is right. Strange the character that he, Inception. Yeah, yeah. What, I don't know why he brought that back to a completely different character, but, uh, yeah. It's it's like, I, you can kind of see a type of character that he's gonna have later, mm-hmm. but but much much better. You know, right. Inception. Inception has one. You know, the suave gentleman. Cr- thief type of thing yeah uh, i'm trying to think what other movies he's you know there's there's it's something he you can tell he wants to do mm-hmm. that kind of that type of character but prestige yeah. kind of has that too with like yeah prestige hugh jackman's character and yeah Christian bale's character both kind of that yeah it and i think it gets better later on because as he gets a bigger budget he can actually hire like good actors who can pull that yeah. sort of stuff off like that's the key thing it's like it may not be some of the best dialogue, but he gets like some of the best actors to who are yeah. able to do it. Like, I didn't think about that till just now, but yeah, you're right. That that type of character, he's been very reliant on having mm-hmm. having a uh, big budget actor and the police chief or whatever. That mm-hmm. would have been Michael. That would have been Michael. That would have been like, Michael Caine. Yeah, yeah that would have like, been Michael Caine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like there's certain character types that he needs these these people to be and. And so he is a little reliant on his his friends type of thing, but uh, I think it's fine. Right? You know, it it it. There's some consistency there. It's always weird because like my. It's always weird though. I think one of the problems that causes minor problems that causes is like 
when the character plays someone slightly different than what you're expecting, it's a little mm-hmm. jarring. So I saw the prestige after Batman and mm. I maybe even after Inception and so the Michael Caine character in that is a little different and a little less trustworthy. You know, he's a little mm-hmm. it's not Sneaky. quite this he's a little sneaker, so it's like, oh, that's throwing me off, you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because I'm expecting basically the exact same thing with uh, Interstellar, actually. Because yeah. and he's starting to use that to subvert, I think, expectations with that, which is great. But yeah, the the Michael Caine character is, ends up being a, a deceitful liar in in Interstellar, mm-hmm. uh, in a horror, you know, kind of a hor- existentially horrifying way. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's it's great that you saw that. Too. That was it said. Uh, that was a family member, or was yeah, it? his uncle John. His Nolan. uncle, okay, yeah, yeah, who was actually like a British TV actor who'd been in like all of the big British series from like the sixties, seventies, and so, and so he he really brought this prestige to it as well. Like I feel like he kind of makes that character. Like if he had had like another like lesser actor, it would not have been pulled off. Like the voice alone is kind of what makes it, and it is a very like michael kane ish voice too he looks like he kind of seems like he would play he would be on the the british version of law and order like that's (laughs) that's the vibe and you don't have much dialogue but you get that you know Mm -hmm. oh yeah he's a cop you know that ending scene with the police interrogation is interesting that's kind Mm -hmm. of the weakest weakest part of the film i think because Mm -hmm. this is the nolan thing You, you spring a trap and then um that's kind of the the trap and you know the puzzle coming together and that trap coming together and everything and and i think mm-hmm. it kind of he kind of runs out of steam he doesn't quite he gets 98 percent of the way there type of thing yeah just because i don't know maybe i'm missing it and i need to rewatch it or read the screenplay or something but am i correct in saying the logic of him going to police doesn't make sense yeah now that i think about it more like when you watch the film you're kind of like oh okay because it all just kind of happens so quickly and I think he's trying to do it to exonerate himself. But also it's like, well, in order to like try to exonerate yourself, you're going to like uh, admit that you attacked that guy with a hammer and stole money, you know, because well, she also says to him like, oh, no, you'll just get like minor charges. You know, he's like, they can still get me for breaking and entering. And it's like, yeah, so some of the logic is kind of flawed with that. Was he he was supposed to get caught, though, right? Yes. He was supposed to get caught, and so the things that spring the tr- so I'm just I gotta rewatch it, but like because like, when he talks to the blonde, there's a version of what's going on that she tells him, but it's not everything, and so the depth yeah. of the depth of the trap is not revealed, but it doesn't make she like, doesn't know that she's about to get killed. Sure, 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 but but there's there's like two levels to it. There's there's oh. There's the credit card and all that stuff is really mm-hmm. like you're you're gonna get trapped, which he doesn't mm-hmm. know. But he should be able to figure that out because if you were supposed to get caught, going in and telling them everything is not gonna be that impressive. And mm-hmm. it sure sounds like he's framing you, so you're you're making yourself vulnerable. But then obviously mm-hmm. there's this the second level, which I think is too far. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, cause why? Why would why would uh, Cobb kill her? Why would Cobb take money to kill her? He he doesn't seem like he's someone. He's not a that, murderer. He's not a murderer. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, I was kind of like, why doesn't he just break into the young man's apartment, steal the money, and then like and, leave? Yeah, that was exact. Yeah, why doesn't he? Why? They, they have not established him as it's like my word is my bond type of person at all. Mm-hmm. So you know the. the 
they kind of create the bald man as this threat and then reveal him not to kind of he's a distraction and then oh wait he's real he's a real existential threat right. to them but it's like well so what what is caught you know there's some relationships in there that that are not fleshed out that that don't make sense with the logic so it's kind of like mm-hmm. tying everything together too much but that's a, a minor right. thing. I mean, I, I wouldn't rely on the, the violence, the, the murder at the end to be shocking. He's already killed a guy, so, you know, he's already... Mm-hmm. I guess he's going to get charged with three murders. Is that the implication then? Uh, two, because the old lady one was just made up. You're right, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was made up. So, wait a yeah. minute. Wait a minute. I'm... <laughs> we got to talk about this then. <laughs> Sorry. I'm confused. <laughs> so... So, so the, they old, did make... the old lady thing was the, what Cobb made up to try to get the blonde to coerce yes. the young man into robbing the place so that he could get uh, caught. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So he's framing him for the murder of the blonde the whole time. Yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. Which make, I knew, I mean, I knew that, but the, yeah, it's like an extra step too many almost. Like it's like. <laughs> He really wants that moment of like we found her body, like to right. be really dramatic, and it's like, all right, get it, like, yeah. you know, whatever. I, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they needed there needed to be more hints. I guess that's that kind of. You're right. I, you know, I I wasn't bothered by Cobb's performance all that much, but now that I think about it, he his care he really does that character type, especially in this. He needs a better actor. He needs mm-hmm. a a a multi level performance that kind of. Uh, isn't overwhelmed by the swarminess so that you can kind of get a mm-hmm. sense of he needs to be likable enough that you get why he follows him and then you also need to get more darkness like a level of darkness beyond right. the the creepiness to imply that he would commit murder because it's just mm-hmm. kind of out, le- out of left field and I guess it logically makes it logically tracks but yeah it, it it's it feels like a step too far on the on the mm-hmm. twist on the twist twist around the twist train yeah yeah but i think he does like a good job with like getting jeremy theobald to play the young man because it's it's smart having your main character not be like super emotional for one of your first films um just knowing that you're not going to be able to get an actor who's going to be able to pull any of that sort of stuff off i think that was a really smart choice and like limitation um, but it makes me wonder too, because like, so they were rehearsing everything for six months before they actually started filming anything. And it, to me, it seems weird that he allowed some of like the choices that Alex Hall made to uh, play Cobb, like some of the hand motions, which part of me was like, that also kind of seems like a Nolan thing, like the hand motion thing. But I'm like, I, yeah, there's just some stuff where I'm like, I'm surprised he didn't change that or make them do different yeah there's clearly a way a romanticized version of criminals that nolan has Mm -hmm. and that that character we've been talking about that kind of archetype that he uses is sort of representative of that and so i think he's kind of vulnerable to a lot you know he kind of seems like he's from another world and so Mm -hmm. uh having a, a more classical you know british actor or whatever later on helps paper over that i think i bet because yeah we also kind of have that idea of a criminal being that way but you need a a substantive british classically trained actor to to pull it off you know type of thing and and so it's kind of jarring in this one because he doesn't have that that 
celebrity, mm-hmm. you know, like pacing over it. I feel like Tom Hardy could be a good option for that, where he does kind of have like some of that suave, but he also can easily play like a scumbag, like at the same time, where it's like a you love him, you hate him sort of character. Like, I feel like he'd be really good in that sort of a role. Oh, yeah. I mean, if he plays the exact same character from Inception, that's basically what he's going yeah. for. I mean, that's 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 the classic version of that later on, for sure. It's true. Um, yeah. And he keeps using Tom Hardy now, too. Yeah. Uh, and one of the interesting things, too, with like jeremy theobald is it's like the start of like the nolan man type that he sets up like yeah all of all of nolan's like films have like very similar looking leads except for i would say like al pacino in insomnia but like you know jeremy theobald guy pierce christian bale leonardo dicaprio they're all like just like that very much like similar type of kind of like a sterner face like maybe like eyes are like a little wider like kind of like almost look like him but like a more like yep. handsome version of him sort of thing is yeah so interesting Lo- longer hair yeah longer hair yeah yeah oh that's what i was thinking of yes uh, so this is a story this is a very aspirational story in some ways because yeah it's a story of a man stuck in his apartment with nothing to do and he's bored in a bad economy mm. and with really long hair. And then the part where he gets, a, he learns to cut his own hair. just really spoke to me right now. Okay. <laughs> it really, it really did. It was almost <laughs> distracting because it's like, man, I really wish I knew how to cut my hair that well. Cause yeah. I'm not going to go to the, I'm not going to go to the barber right the barber, now, yeah. but I really need a haircut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I have to go to jail to get a haircut. I don't know. Also, there's like, no way he could have cut it that well by himself like you look at the back of it and you're like that that is definitely like a trim like there's no way you can get that with like scissors like yeah, that the, clean of that, a cut he didn't cut that his hair that way and yeah. uh that was one thing too is like because i kept showing him crossing the line with the questions i kept being like mm-hmm. why is she dating him like what's the point this doesn't make sense. Like he's not. Mm, yeah. He, he he cut his hair and he wears a suit. He's still not that interesting of a person. No, he's not. So, oh. Yeah. So so when that's revealed, it's like, oh, all right, that makes sense because uh, yeah. he didn't oh. do anything. Like he show himself to be interesting in any substantive way. But whatever. Yeah. That that scene whenever he like because whenever he's with her, he, he like you know tries to basically be Cobb. Man, that scene whenever she goes to change into clothes and he like walks up into her room and like grabs her head and like kisses her. I'm like, Oh, that is like so weird and so awkward and gross. And yeah, it's like, yeah, you, you are not, not that type of person. He's like, I'm a writer. Gosh. Like what kind of writer, like a cheap dime store romance novel writer. I mean, yeah, I agree. It was very cringy. Like, again it's noir type of thing a lot of times the that type of stuff is not written very well anyway so i that's mm-hmm. kind of that's kind of nolan's whole thing is like some of those twists get covered up by what you would consider to be bad acting or like like mm-hmm. not bad acting but like it doesn't make 100 percent sense in a realistic world but because right. he's kind of pl- playing in a, a genre area you know especially noir sense it kind of makes sense but then it's Mm -hmm. revealed those weaknesses are revealed to be you know twists he's done that before for sure yeah um where the motivations don't make sense but then it actually does make sense 
And I, one thing I will give him credit for, he's very smart about letting the audience know whenever different timelines are going on by changing the physical appearance of characters. That's a very small, very smart thing to be doing. And I think just having like um, the young man's like haircut and like different yes. look is like a very smart way of cluing the audience in like, okay, this is happening at two separate times without being like, you know, ham-fisted about it and saying like, oh yeah, this is when, after this happened sort of thing. And he's very, very good about that. It reminds me of a, a show uh, called True Detective Season 3. <laughs> they did, did a good job of uh, making the characters look different. That's a challenge. And it's no one for, mm. like, he basically has to be good at that or else his movies fall apart. Um, mm-hmm. he, he could teach um, some other movies, no-budget movies, like primer some lessons about establishing different timelines and Mm -hmm. having them wear a jacket or something or different colored (laughs) shirt or something so you can tell what's going on because i agree you know there's there's this type of director that is sort of like nolan-esque primer is a great example but other movies like Mm -hmm. this what's it called convert concurrence convergence something like that as a Mm comment going by but like um i think he's bet the best at he you know the complicated Mm -hmm. plot and everything like that that he's kind of he's cleared the way for that too in a lot of ways but i think some of those other kind of not copycats but people that have been inspired by him Mm -hmm. uh struggle with signaling the the different plot lines and i've met people that don't understand inception but generally generally speaking when you're confused you're supposed to be confused and when there's Mm -hmm. clarity you're supposed you're you're, there's supposed to be clarity and he does a good job of keeping the threads together visually like that so that's Mm -hmm. a good point yeah one of the other limitations that makes this film too is picking like a genre film i think that's something a lot of early filmmakers don't thing to do and it's like oftentimes a big mistake it's very hard to tackle like a good drama like where it's just a couple people talking when you're in an early film and it's i think it's a much smarter much safer path to actually pick some type of genre to try to get a lift off on that because it can seem easier to just have like a couple people talking in a room but it is so much harder to like continue with it um and there's just so many like i i think crime like a crime drama is a good place to start because it's very easy to shoot it like on the cheap like he did with this like you know just having a handheld airy bl that he was carrying around with him just shooting on his shoulder you know because it, it worked with like the rough and tumble of it it works to have like rougher sort of spaces and like characters who don't have to wear like you know five hundred dollar suits or that sort of thing or like big costumes and all of that and i mean like another one that comes to mind is like Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket, which is his first film, which is kind of like a comedy heist sort of film as well. And it works like really well instead of like, like I can't imagine if he had just started off with like his style of, you know, just like a couple people in a room just having like an off the wall, like sort of conversation. Like I don't think he would have picked up the traction that he had. And so I think tackling genre at an early, an early film is a very smart idea. Yeah, you can't start with my dinner with Andre because right. you won't have the you won't have the actors for it. Yeah, no, no. that's a that's a good. Point. We're kind of I feel like we're kind of cr- um, saying how great the movie is overall, but then critiquing mm-hmm. specific things. But there are yeah. like there are parts of this that are really impressive. Like yeah, 
the the camera work is amazing like mm-hmm. I, I i nothing i didn't notice anything that was like oh man that's that's he didn't have a budget like it, you're saying was it it was him right filming yeah or, yeah like the the camera work is indistinguishable from a, a normal film like mm-hmm. the, and the black and white covers up the you know the the that's like lighting cheaper, cheap, and like color film. Yeah. the lighting is great uh it's very clear that the 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 big thing that i really was impressed with actually was the you're talking about telling the the people apart the place mm. telling where locations were was mm. so so clear like maybe one of the best movies i've ever seen actually considering the black and white mm-hmm. of i i've actually had a problem with some maybe some of his films where it's like wait is this the same place a little mm-hmm. bit just a couple times none of that like his apartment because mm-hmm. he he breaks in he has him Cobb break into his own apartment to kind of right. like, see see what Cobb thinks of him type of thing but like that very clear I tracked on that right away that's a very distinct place you know he's there anytime because of all the stuff on the mm-hmm. like he decorates everything in such a unique way her apartment it's very clear when they're breaking into her apartment that it's her apartment even though they don't go to all the main areas right away like it's mm-hmm. I was really impressed with uh, the doors in the what is it, the bar are so unique. Yeah, the, like, he, like he, little he, windows. He, yeah, he he picked unique locations that were so not in your face, but like mm-hmm. you knew you knew where the setting was. Which was so especially black and white can get really confusing without yeah. color um, to to use. So I was really really impressed with that, and then the camera work was really good. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another tip to like. Young filmmakers, if you want to like shoot something and make it look more professional, shoot it in black and white because oftentimes you are not going to be able to find a good enough color grader to make it actually look like, you know, a studio film. So shooting in black and white, but also like knowing how to shoot like and light in black and white is a very key thing. You cannot light a black and white film the way you light a film in color. Um, and he, he does that very smartly. Like he... Before this, he was working for like, I think like an ad or marketing company where he would be shooting like promo videos. So it'd be like very on the fly, go in, shoot something really quick with your light set up and then like go out and like that sort of thing. And you see that so much in this. And and that's why he's really good at getting like two takes and like rapping on that because, you know, it's all he could afford. And it's crazy. Like, um the sound was another like thing I was really impressed with on this because a lot of like smaller films often have big sound problems. Um, and he said like the trick that he did with this was uh, he started off the film with like very good sound, like recorded in a very controlled environment for like the first four minutes. So that way, whenever the audience was getting used to it, they weren't jarred by like, oh, there's like a bunch of like noises going on, but the sound actually sounds crisp. And then like after the four minutes, it goes into like where you can hear the camera whirring most of the time and like other background noises and all that. And so he like caps it, like begins and caps it with those those two like good sets of audio. So that way, like the audience isn't going to be like, oh, why does the sound so bad? And there are like definite moments where you can hear the camera like the camera fan going very quickly and yeah but for the most part i was i was very surprised by how good it was and the score too yeah like there's you know i talk about black white specifically you can like i've seen you know you kind of put it on as a paint a coat of paint to be like this is indie you know but this Mm -hmm. was this was really using using it it feels natural it feels uh it doesn't feel like they just you know took away the color to get rid of it they did everything right mm-hmm. with that limitation and and it 
I mean, it, it looks like a film, like as weird as yeah. it sounds, like if it looks like a film that you'd see in theaters and you wouldn't think, oh man, this is, this is a student film. It does not feel like a student film. Mm-hmm. It, it, some moments with the acting that, yeah, it, it does feel a little cringy, but not really to the point where it ever takes you out of it. And I, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the technical, like most of the, t- most of the time, like it talk about, I talk about, um, Lord of the Rings just being so surprised that they gave that to Peter Jackson just because mm-hmm. it's so much money. It's like, and I know the story about it, but it still like blows my mind that, that he got that. This, mm-hmm. this does not surprise me. Like I, it almost surprises mm-hmm. me that it took longer for him to get a big franchise because mm-hmm. this, I look at this, I'm like, this person is going to be an excellent director. They have the technical skill. There's a, there's a, it exudes competence in a way that, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm sure Hollywood people are like, this guy, this guy's going to be a big deal because just to, to make all those decisions in the right way to hide the lack of money yeah. in, in such a almost completely painting over any problems this movie would have from the lack of talent or lack of money or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it was really impressive. And right. Um, he got a lot of momentum. He he said that Memento was the biggest jump in his career, which makes mm-hmm. sense. But even Memento is still it's still really he, small. Like, it's bigger, but bigger budget. But it's still yeah, it's still not a big blockbuster. But mm-hmm. I feel like blockbuster, competent blockbuster directors have to be competent with small budgets too, mm-hmm. and and. Maybe you know with Trank or whatever, people aren't as good at judging. You, you you make a good indie film. There's one thing to make a good indie film, good student film, whatever, and it's another to do it in a way that also shows that you are so competent that you're going to be able to handle the budget, mm-hmm. you know, going on. And I'm sure that's a challenge for people looking for scouts, looking for for new talent and stuff. But mm-hmm. um, uh, just hearing all these stories, it's like, man, if you had heard any of these, you would have known. That, that this was going to be a big thing, and he wasn't going to blow a bigger budget because right. that all those this all is an attitude to how all these decisions are made that really, mm-hmm. uh, I think, showed that he was going to be good at this. Right, I know it makes me wish like I was older than five years old when <laughs> Memento came out, so I could actually track with like Nolan's career because he definitely seems like the kind that it would just be so interesting to see like Memento and be like, oh man, what is he going to do next, and like. You know, we're getting to see that with, like, some other directors right now. Like, I feel like Damien Chazelle is kind of on that level. Like, I remember yes. seeing Whiplash and being like, oh, my gosh, I cannot wait to see what this guy is doing. And Greta Gerwig, too. Like, I mean, seeing Lady Bird, and I was like, wow, I am really excited for, like, her next couple films and, like, seeing where she goes with it. And, like, um, and the surprise of her, like, tackling Little Women and it working so well. And even, like, just getting even more steam power being like, man... I can't wait to see what she does next. It's awesome. What did uh What did he do before Whiplash? I don't. Guy and Madeline on a park bench, which is a okay. musical that he made whenever he was in Harvard. Yeah, I, Whiplash might be the most impressive first fi- like first film, like studio film, sort studio of studio film. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it was a bigger budget though, right? Like he, that's a big jump. It was like five mil. Made. Yeah, so he kind of jumped super big. He kind of jumped straight to his memento kind of thing, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, that's he's he, you know, we're talking about Sam Mendes, and then um, and there's a couple other directors that we we talk about being like Nolan, but mm. Chazelle reminds me the most of just 
the uber competence of yeah what he does i mean the first man is just a really good movie like everything mm-hmm. he makes is good and and competent and and has a basic level of he knows what he's doing mm-hmm. and and that reminds me a lot because sam mendez has had some flops yeah flops yeah and so his style is similar to nolan but i think Chazelle, like damien Chazelle is someone that's like he knows what he's doing he knows what he's he knows how to craft a film in in the same way as yeah. as a nolan well uh should we get to trivia and challenge fine <laughs> all right first question who is the credit card victim named after oh no come on named after yes is it a the producer or a producer b the bar owner c the editor or d the sound guy producer final answer yes it's incorrect it's actually the sound guy so um the name was different in the script and then they're needing to get better sound and so um nolan asks his friend david lloyd if he can use some of his equipment and so he's like yeah sure but just like put my name in there somewhere and so he changes the the name of the guy whose credit card got stolen from his flat i got tricked i got i got tricked and got too clever and i thought well credit card is paying for everything so producer (laughs) but they didn't have any money yeah it's two on the nose that would have been two on the nose dang it (laughs) yes all right question two whose apartment was used for the young man's house is it a uh, christopher nolan's B, Jeremy Theobald's, C, Jonathan Nolan's, or D, Emma Thomas's? Jeremy Theobald. B. That's correct. Yep. <laughs> All right. What other Nolan film did Jeremy Theobald appear in? Is it A, Batman Begins, B, Insomnia, C, Memento, or D, The Prestige? Insomnia. That's incorrect. It's actually Batman Begins. Yeah. Okay. He's a minor role. I think he has kind of in the background on there. Is he a criminal? He seems like a criminal. Like no, a I think he's like one of the police officers. I can't remember though. Okay. All right. You ready for your challenge now? Yes. All right. Hopefully this shouldn't be too hard for you. I feel like you can get this pretty easily. Can you list all of Christopher Nolan's films? Does this include stuff before following? Because I won't get that. No, like feature films. Okay. Yeah. Following, Memento, Insomnia... Uh, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception, Dark um, so Dark Knight Rises. That there's a, and then uh, uh, Interstellar, Dunkirk, yep. Tenet. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Which is actually nice. the big twist of Tenet is going to be that it actually came out six months ago. Yeah. <laughs> In one theater in the middle of the country. I'm very excited about Tenet because it reminds me of the way I like so the the way I felt seeing the teaser for Inception, where mm-hmm. it's like, what is what going is on? And then the second trailer or whatever came out for in, Inception. They're like, it's about dreams. So it's a little confusing. But it's like, okay, it makes the visuals make sense now. Like it was very confusing. Mm-hmm. They're they're starting to explain in the second trailer of Tenet. They're starting to explain what it's about, and I'm still confused. <laughs> so I'm, ex- I'm excited. Yeah, I love being confused by a movie yeah. going in. So yeah, I've only seen the first teaser, and I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to know anything else about it, and just kind of be it, in the dark. And they don't. It doesn't. 
you don't learn anything more really yeah it's sort of man i'm excited it's gonna be good yeah me too i'm i'm super pumped for it i'm ready for that to come out and right as of now it's coming out in august because they just moved it from the end of july to august which is good because i'm like i want to see it in theaters but i don't know if i'm comfortable going back into theaters at the end of july (laughs) it's not a not a smart move nolan so good for you for moving it. He, he wants to be the first. So I think he's fine moving it. He just want he just wants to be first. Yeah, it's gonna be nice too. Like actually getting like a bunch of good films to come out like as soon as like theaters open again because you have uh, Tenet or Tenet or however the heck you say it, and then um, the French Dispatch, the new Wes Anderson film. You got Dune coming out. You know all that good sort of stuff. So I'm I'm pumped. Well, I think that about wraps us up for this episode. Um, Tune in next week for our episode on Whiplash, directed by Damien Chazelle, where we will actually be having Riley back on it again. He's taken basically a one-episode break from his his no longer being a co-host. And we're also having a special returning guest there, Dan Funk, who was on our Fading West episode. We're very excited to have him uh, come back and talk about it. We got two drummers on there, so it's going to be a good time hearing about their personal experiences towards the film make sure to follow us as well on social media we're on facebook instagram twitter all that sort of stuff we're at rules of the frame you can check us out on there um feel free to start up a conversation on there you can send us a dm if you have any questions about like any of the episodes or comments or corrections or anything of that sort let us know we want to hear about it we want to make these shows as good as possible for you guys if you wouldn't mind making uh, a review on itunes we'd really appreciate it as well it helps make our show more visible and seen to other people who have never heard of us and all that so we we really appreciate any sort of publicity at all and thank you guys for listening uh we gotta thank john for the artwork and gotta thank caden reed ethan stafford and luke hogan for the use of the theme song and the outro This has been film analysis for a modern audience. Nice.